When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. A belated welcome back to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Coming up on today's show, we have an amazing interview with Amanda Werner. They are a creative activist and lawyer who helped lead the MXDC protest, which saw Kirsten Nielsen chased into her SUV. But first, in future shows, we will return to UK politics. There have been happenings and occurrences in the UK, in Parliament, all of it related to Brexit, economics, Scottish independence, and the ongoing destabilization of one of our closest allies. And I will be bringing you the full story on those developments and more. But for the sake of a very brief introduction, here's a quick primer on how voting works in Parliament. And I swear I am not making any of this up. The presiding officer, the speaker, shouts division. Everyone in the House gets up and walks into two rooms. Party whips count every member who goes into the rooms. Once enough time has passed that everyone can make it into these two rooms, the voters are counted as they exit the rooms. This process takes 45 minutes. It can be slowed down even further by having members refuse to leave one of the voting lobbies. Traditionally, because these are honorable gentlemen and ladies, people wait for them. And they wait. And they wait. And then they send someone into the lobby Uh. to fetch them with a sword. And that's with how a sword? Works. Yeah. I'm not making that up. <laughs> that's the sergeant at arms. That's, that's how it works. And uh, other than like the queen, that person is the only person allowed to tell a member of a parliament, a, a member of parliament that they have to go now. And you're obliged to wait for them first. So yeah, you can slow down the whole process and then they send someone with a sword after you. That's voting <laughs> in parliament. I, I was stunned to believe that, and it's true. It's absolutely true. Uh, Arliss? <laughs> well, uh, I really apologize for us being on such an extended hiatus. It's all on me. It was my bad. Uh, I thought I had a really um, dense project that would take about mm, a week to 10 days for my company. And uh, I was, it, well, anyway. And it ended up being one of those things where you start to pull on the thread and all of a sudden the whole garment explodes, basically. So uh, we ended up having to do about three weeks of you know long hours and in- enormous work to get that done. And then in like the second to last day of that project, uh, our company is in the process or has been looking for this particular CNC machine. We're adding CNC machining into our process. And it's many, many, many tens of thousands of dollars to buy this thing. And we know which company we, you know, we know which machine we want and everything. And so I've been keeping an eye out every day. And uh, uh, one of those machines popped onto the internet on eBay of all places. So I went and took a look. And it actually wasn't the machine we wanted. It was the very, very top of the line, about twice as big as the one we wanted, but absolutely, you know, top of the line and for a freaking amazing price. So we bought it. 
but now we have to actually tear walls out. This thing is gigantic. So we have to tear walls out of the building and change our um, ventilation systems and do all kinds of things before this thing gets here from Georgia. So, and I have to make all the arrangements to get it moved from Georgia to Indiana. So that kind of, so contractors and ripping things apart and that was, that's all a project. Then, because that wasn't enough, uh, we all of a sudden, um, one of our, my employees was responsible for this and um, I had basically loaded too many things on his shoulders and um, he let a ball drop. And the ball was that by X date, one of our websites for one of our primary product lines, uh, that website was going to have to go dark because um, it didn't meet certain kinds of security protocols. And the HostGator, which hosts that site, the version of HostGator that our site was on couldn't be upgraded. And anyway, we had to build a whole new website. So I've been working 16 to 18 hours a day to build an entirely new gigantic website to support this product line. Um, and it's an insane amount of work to try to do in under two weeks. So, um, that's what I've been doing and that's why I haven't been on the air. And basically I've been eating and practically sleeping at my desk ever since I talked to you last. And uh, so it isn't like I didn't want to get back to you. I just couldn't. Um, I do have some really exciting news. We should be up on Spotify, probably actually by the time this podcast is available. And that's a new and exciting news for us. In coming weeks, I will be covering Bitcoin and the crazy that's going on there, postal banking, pe the People's Bank, and of course, I'll be updating you on trade because there's an enormous amount going on in that entire area. And uh, I'd like to close out the top with, um, with my favorite current joke. Um, you know, the Triple Crown is extremely um, difficult and very few horses actually win all three races. And in the something like 125 years or whatever that the uh, Triple Crown has been run, it's only been won 13 times. And uh, Justify, uh, the three-year-old Justify won this year and uh, uh, was invited to the White House. And uh, he declined to go to the White House, and when asked by reporters, the three-year-old neighed, well, if I wanted to see a horse's ass, I'd have finished second. <laughs> Coming up next, we have our interview with Amanda Warner here on Hopping Mat. Back on Hopping Mad, Amanda Warner is a creative activist and lawyer taking on the rich and powerful. They are best known as the activist who went viral last October after crashing the Senate hearing on Equifax dressed as Monopoly Man. Those of you who regularly follow Hopping Mad will recall that we had Amanda on shortly after that smash success at the hearing. They have since trolled Mark Zuckerberg as a troll, which I completely, so completely loved, and Mick Mulvaney. Amanda works as a campaign strategist for public justice and as a consultant for How to Help News and a campaign to fire Wells Fargo. Welcome back, Amanda. This makes you an official friend of the pod. Thank you so much <laughs> for taking time during this really busy time to talk to us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. So... Let's start with the elephant in the room. 
actually. Let's start with his DHS secretary, Christian Nielsen. <laughs> we hear you interrupted her dinner at MXDC Cochina Mexicana last week and sent her scurrying for her SUV like La Cucaracha. Would you tell <laughs> us the story and all the details? Every little morsel. We want to know all of it. Yeah, absolutely. So this was definitely a different type of protest than I'm used to. Um, usually I, I work alone. Um, and this time what happened is I was actually, you know, just had gotten off work, went and got a fresh haircut, um, and then was actually about to go to a book club meeting. And as I'm about to get on the train, I get a text from one of my friends who says that he's eating at MXDC and Kirsten Nelson is at a nearby table. Um, and so he said, Hey, Kirsten Nielsen is here. Can you get activists here now? Um, wow. so I was, you know, I got on a different train than I had planned. 10 minutes later, I'm outside of the restaurant. Um, I was the first person to arrive. And then I just started, you know, texting, messaging, uh, everyone I knew. I posted about it on Twitter, posted about it on Facebook to all of my followers and just try to get people down there. So flying um, thumbs is what you're telling me. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this was completely spur of the moment, unplanned. Um, it came together beautifully. I think it looks like we put a lot more prep work into it, it than does. we did. Um, but yeah, it really, I would say between the time that I got the text and the time that we were standing outside of our table was about 25 minutes. Wow. That, that's, that is really remarkable. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Well and I, done. I definitely can't take full credit for that. Um, the DC area Democratic Socialists of America got the call and they marshaled most of the people there. Um, and luckily they have a lot of people who are, you know, very dedicated, very organized that were able to get down there quickly. Um, but yeah, it was, it was incredible. And, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen for a while. I, for about 10 minutes, I was standing out there by myself and I was just like, Oh God, you know, I had no idea if she was about to finish eating at any moment. I thought I might have to just confront her myself and really wasn't sure what I was going to do. That's interesting. So you, the people arrive, right? Did they, mm -hmm. you know, in clumps and spurts, I would imagine, because yeah. they're all dropping what they're doing too. And you just, you know, swarmed the restaurant? Yeah. So I would say the first batch of people arrived, you know, five to 10 minutes after I did. Um, it was the first time I had met all of these people. Um, oh so we just kind of, we just kind of planned. We had, I think, a group of four of us initially that, that just talked about, all right, what do we want to do? What do we think is most effective? We debated if we wanted to stand outside the restaurant and catch her when she was coming out, if we wanted to go into the restaurant and actually disturb her dinner. Um, someone immediately threw out the idea of playing the audio of the children crying in the detention center. Um, oh, good idea. That was a really good idea. So we were debating, okay, whose phone is the loudest? How are we going to do this? And <laughs> as luck would have it, one of the people who came a little bit later happened to have a Bluetooth speaker on him. So we were able to, to play it loud. And I actually was holding up the speaker for probably, you know, five minutes just playing the children crying on loop, which I think was the most powerful part of our protest. Oh, man. Did the owner of the restaurant um, or any of the patrons, did they join in? Did they comment negatively? What was the... Other reaction in the restaurant? I would say the restaurant was split. Um, I think about half the diners uh, were into the protest, clapping along, cheering us. Some of them joined in chanting. A few of them even actually just stood up and joined us, which was great. Um, but there were there was a solid, you know, I'd say at least half of the people who just looked annoyed that we were disturbing their mealtime. Um, and actually, at one point, I turned to the people in the restaurant. And I said, you know, hey, if you ever wondered how you'd react in a major historical moment, you're doing it right now. 
Um, <laughs> if you ever I, wondered what a good German was, the, you. <laughs> yes, it's you. Yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, I, ho- I hope that hit some of them and made them rethink. But as far as the restaurant itself, you know, there's actually been some misinformation out there and how it's been reported. Right when we came in, or I... Right when we started to walk towards Secretary Nielsen, um, the manager came to us and said, no, 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 you have to leave. So they did try to kick us out. We ignored them. Um, The managers were not on our side. Um, And in fact, they've made statements to the media trying to, you know, say they were neutral and they support our our right to protest. But I've actually uh, gotten other messages from them uh, that say that they plainly didn't think we should be there and wanted us to go. So they were not supportive. I would say I saw some of the servers and some of the busboys and things like that kind of giving us secret smiles. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, it's a classic like management versus worker divide, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So less covered was um, Stephen Miller as at who went to um, Espita Mezcalaria, I think it is, two days prior Mm -hmm. to the Nielsen protest. Do you think, I mean... I can't figure out whether they're both just this stupid or yeah. both just this tone deaf or whether they planned this in order to, you know, poke the libs and and therefore drive mm-hmm. drive you know maga support. I can't quite figure out if it was tactic or tone deaf. Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind to me is that Anthony Bourdain quote of America loves Mexican food and hates Mexican people. And I think that's very apt with the Mm -hmm. Trump administration. Um, But I would say in general, you know, I could imagine Stephen Miller doing it just to rib people um, because he just seems to delight in being a villain. Um, I also can imagine him just not caring and wanting to eat whatever he wants to eat. Um, Secretary Nielsen, there was a lot of speculation that she might have done this purposely to kind of be like, "Oh, oh, no, the liberals are attacking me. But I really don't think that was the case. She didn't seem prepared for it. In fact, her um, her press secretary sent out a statement later that day that was just a total mess. I mean, this didn't seem like something they had pre-planned. I think the statement said something like, you know, the secretary shares the concerns of the protesters about this policy. It's like, what are you talking about? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She said she she wants constructive dialogue or something. It's like, well, she's never she didn't try to interact with us at all. So that doesn't seem to match. Um, but I, no, I, I think... think- I just asked, do you think she's afraid that her career is now going to be tied to this decision and this, this, the fact that they're putting babies in camps forever? Because that seems to be what she's afraid of to me. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the power in confronting her as opposed to going after Trump is that I think when you start going bureaucrats who actually have to push these policies, these are not politicians who are used to public scrutiny. I think that confronting them in these ways really does get under their skin in a way that it wouldn't to someone who, you know, has campaigned. Um, and, you know, we can't take credit for the fact that the next day um, she wrote um, uh, an executive order for Trump to rescind the family separation policy. But I do think that actually getting in these people's faces, making them confront what they're doing in a public way does make a difference. Um, and I hope we'll see more of it. I, I actually I, was I actually was going to ask you about that very thing. The, mm-hmm. the you know there was there's also the protest at Nielsen's house this morning with people playing, you know, the crying baby over, you know, loudspeakers and Jeff Sessions got a really blistering letter from the United Methodist Church and he's been an yeah. active Methodist his whole life and these are really personal protests, intimate even in many, you know, mm-hmm. in many ways. 
these types of actions feel very different to me. And um, do they feel different to you from either your individual solo actions or larger marches and protests? Absolutely. I mean, you know, what's funny is I actually think they feel closer to the individual times that I've, you know, trolled a CEO or, or trolled Mick Mulvaney at a hearing because those were like one-on-one person-to-person things where, you know, I was just feet away from these people. Um, and I did notice that those types of protests had a more direct effect on the people that we were targeting. Um, so I think they're very distinct from marches and protests where, you know, we might be going against Trump, we might be going against an idea or a policy. We are going after individual people. And I know that that can make people blister a little bit. I've seen especially more moderate folks think, oh, is this the right way to go? Um, But I do think we're reaching a point as a nation where the damage is getting grave enough and obvious enough that people are willing to push the boundaries of what's allowable in a protest. And I think that this is, you know, it's not something we prefer to do. I would rather not be protesting inside a restaurant. But I think if this is what's going to keep kids from being locked up in cages, I will do anything. When we're to the point of newscasters, you know, breaking down in tears. Yeah. Yeah. So, Amanda, we've always known that the Christian right doesn't care about actual children, just those who are, to quote Trey Crowder, white, unborn and purely hypothetical. We've always known this, but how do we help the rest of the country realize that? Oh, you know, I mean, as the Trump administration continues on, I actually feel like they're kind of doing that for us. Um, you know, yeah. the, the one gift of Trump, I think, is that he's really laid bare just how vulgar the entire conservative movement has become in the past, you know, couple decades. Um, I mean, just yesterday with Melania wearing the jacket saying, I really don't care. Do you? I mean, you know these immigrants are taking my job of embarrassing the Trump administration. (laughs) Um, Oh my gosh. I do think that we need to, you know, keep pushing back against this kind of both sides. What aboutism that we see creeping up, you know, pretty much every week in the New York times op-ed section. But in general, I think that as long as we keep calling them out for what they're doing and not try to hide from, uh, you know, their disgusting actions, I think they're kind of doing a lot of the work for us. They really are alienating most people at this point, except for their base, which I think, you know, there's not much they can do to alienate those folks. To a significant degree, though, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, to hell with everybody who's saying that both sides are the same, because we could not have a clearer contrast than we do right now, where mm-hmm. Republicans want to put babies in cages and <laughs> kidnap them from their families and Democrats want basic decency. There's a, there's a clear divide here. And yeah. uh, so that's another area that we need to message better on. Uh, it, and as someone who's involved in these protests, how do we push up back against that? What about isn't best, do you think? Huh. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I had uh, some Trump supporters coming for me on Twitter this week. And one of them, you know, was calling me sick and twisted. And I just remarked, I was like, you know, of all reasons, I thought a random stranger on the Internet would call me sick and twisted. Being against baby jails was not on the list. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I think a lot of it is just sticking to a message and not wavering on it. I think part of the problem the left has had is that 
on some level, we've always kind of bought into the whataboutism ourselves. We're so quick to doubt ourselves. We're so quick to waver as soon as there's any opposition. I think what we're really missing is just strong and clear ideals that we don't waver from no matter what happens. And I think not only do we have to be strong in our ideals, but our ideals should be bold and radical. You know, I really think that it isn't that the U.S. is so far to the right and, you know, we have to temper our message to meet them. I honestly think it's that they see... Democrats and leftists as weak because we're constantly compromising. We're never actually standing up for any real values. You know, we follow the polls, we follow the mainstream instead of leading. I think we need more leadership on our side of the aisle. I agree with that completely. One problem that I always notice, though, is in the messaging. We always get dragged to the side by red herrings. And we all know where that's happened before. We, we Trump confessed to committing the crime of sexual assault, and we let the Republicans turn it into a conversation about language, rather than saying we don't. We do care about the language, but that's not the point. We care about the fact that he confessed to a crime on tape, because mm-hmm. sexual assault. We and we ignore that. The NFL protests stopped being about children being shot. And turned mm-hmm. into the flag, and we let that debate happen. And we've mm-hmm. already seen the pushback from the Fox Blondes and from Sinclair Media now, where you know uh, Laura Ingram's calling these places summer camps, and I don't know what summer camps she went to, but as a camp counselor, we didn't <laughs> yeah. lock toddlers in cages mm-hmm. at my summer camp. And so we see this tactic over and over and over again, where they change the conversation because they're losing, and they mm-hmm. want to reset the conversation on ground that's more favorable to them because babies in cages is not a debatable thing that's you know universally immoral so how do we keep them from changing the subject i mean i think it's kind of as simple as not letting them change the subject i mean that's the thing is i think it's actually easier in a lot of ways than what we're doing now it's just that we've allowed ourselves to get into this habit um but you know we need to insist on our talking points. We need to, I think, talk actually more together um, in coming up with universal, um, you know, universally agreed upon values and things that we're going to focus on. You know, it's been clear in the last couple of decades that Republicans are having daily talking points memos sent out to their people. That's why there's always, you know, five different representatives on Fox News, Fox News spouting the exact same thing. Democrats haven't had that kind of message discipline. And obviously, when you get outside the Democratic Party, I think it gets even more chaotic. I think we need to come together at this moment on issues that we can agree on and agree on some messaging. You know, we're always going to want to take it from a slightly different angle. But the more that we can at least harmonize our messages, you know, we can always have different things said, but they need to go together somehow so that we're not getting lost in all these different battles. I think really at the end of the day, we need to stand strong and we need clear leadership. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I do think Democrats are actually starting to get that. And I see it more evidenced, um, in, in increasing degrees, a couple of months ago, and I think maybe on our last show before the hiatus, I commented on this, I had heard an interview with Congressman Joaquin Cruz, and mm-hmm. basically the interview went like this. Congressman, what's your opinion on peanut butter? I think peanut butter is fine, but before I open a jar of peanut butter, I I think that fixing our immigration system, which is we need to fix our immigration system, which has been broken for far too long. Congressman, what's your opinion on rain? 
Well, I think we need to fix our immigration system, which has been broken for far too long. He said that phrase 12 times in one interview, and it did not matter what they asked him. Mm-hmm. He found a way to segue back to fixing our immigration system, which has been broken for far too long, no matter what the topic was. It was mm-hmm. it was a work of genius. It was absolutely beautiful. And you see that so rarely in Democrats. So I was impressed that somebody has finally impressed upon Democrats that they need to say the same thing 50 times. The other thing is that I really think we need to aim higher. And you start to hear things like, you know, talking about debt forgiveness, college loan debt forgiveness, and um, uh, job guarantee programs, things like that. That is aiming higher. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of conversations, those kinds of things, we can agree on those. And I think when you talk to um, Democrats about job guarantee, they start to see possibilities. And... uh, maybe they start to dream a little and that's valuable. That's marketable for us. Mm-hmm. So that's hopeful. And yeah. That's how you drag people, you know, into the polls and that's how you get people motivated. Agreed. Yeah. And you know, my worry about the Trump era is that who knows how Trump is going to leave office. Right. But at some point he's going to leave. And what I'm really worried about is how the Democrats are going to respond after that, because I'm worried that, you know, we're going to equivocate, we're going to argue over how do we get rid of the the various policies that he's put in place, how many of them do we want to allow to stay, how many of them might we keep, and we get lost in doing the damage control, and we never actually get to the point of governing and leading with our own ideas. That's because, what happens every time. Yeah, exactly. I think Obama's um, entire tenure was largely built yeah. on... You know, responding to things that Bush did and we we didn't get to do many of our own accomplishments and then when we did we you know argued about oh well how radical should this be Uh, I don't know and then we end up with you know the ACA which was a some a bold move in some ways but obviously a lot less than most Democrats wanted at the time and then even that gets stripped away in the next administration um, in a lot of ways so I think we need to be quick and decisive I think when Trump is out of office we need to immediately do as much as we can to just get rid of everything that he accomplished. Just like, you know, he's gotten already uh, rid of so many things that Obama's done. We need to do the exact same thing, if not more radical, with the things that he he has done. Um, I would like to see a blanket repeal of every single piece of legislation that passed on a party line, um, you know, in the last two years. I think that's move number one, instead of working on something that's incredibly piecemeal and, you know, spending our first year or two doing it. Like, let's get it out of the way the first month. Um, but that's a hard sell for Democrats. We always want to build consensus and make sure everyone agrees and all of that. We don't take the fact that, you know, winning an election, especially when you actually win it, as opposed by, you know, getting it by the electoral college means that people support your ideas. You don't need to then argue them again. Yeah. If you don't have the participation per trophy presidency, you do have the political clout to actually, uh, take things forward. Um, and I agree with the idea of blanket repeal. The question is how do we get democratic electeds? on Mm -hmm. board with the idea that we need to be bold about our policies and beliefs. I actually think that they're almost there. I just came back. I was a delegate to the Indiana State Democratic Convention. So I was there last weekend. And um, (laughs) these are conservative Democrats. This is, you know, this is the land of blue dogs and both sides and, you know, Joe Donnelly. And Mm -hmm. um, 
I have never heard Democrats talk more. I've never been anywhere where I heard Democrats talk more about, um, you know, pulling together and moving forward and putting our head down and blowing through. And it was, it was incredibly um, dynamic for blue dogs. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing to hear that in California where I'm from. It's another thing to hear that in, in Indianapolis. Yeah, I certainly hope we keep that momentum. I am very worried. I'm also just worried that the reaction to, you know, the post-Trump era will just be like, oh, thank God, this, you know, immediate threat is gone. Now we can just go back to normal. And I think it's become abundantly clear, especially in the past year, that normal is broken. Normal is gone. We, you know, we have to build something new from the rubble here. Um, I think Trump, you know, obviously personifies a lot of the problems in our country, but he does not contain them all in his person. He has exposed them and they're not going to be gone once Trump is gone. And so we're going to need a really transformative change in this country if we want to prevent another Trump from happening. And if we actually want to move forward in a way that's going to benefit all Americans. Um, well, and I do worry that Democrats are just going to be so relieved that he's gone, that we go back to normal and pretend it's just, you know, 2015 again. So I guess that's something we have to do now then is we can't just be anti-Trump. We have to tell the American people what we are for. Yeah. And I listened to mayors and city councilmen and, you know, um, really uh, sort of grassroots level, grassroots level um, Dems talking in those ways about how they were, you know, dragging their cities forward and how they were trying to get in front of the state and how they were trying to sort of mute the damage being done out of Indianapolis by our current hideous governor and, you know, all of that. And they're thinking about, I don't know, they're thinking about the future in, in um, shockingly new ways for stick-in-the-mud Dems. So I'm hopeful. I'm more hopeful than I was. Yeah, you know, it gives me the most hope, I think, is how many people now are running for office, getting involved in politics and activism yeah. that have never done it before and never had an interest before. I think that's exactly what we need. You know, we need people who are just everyday citizens who don't think about this in terms of parties and, and politics that just do things that are correct. You know, there's a lot I think we can learn from party insiders. And obviously, you know, I'm becoming more and more of a politico by day just because... I work and live in D.C., but I think uh, all the best politicians I've seen are people who originally ran for office, not because that had always been their life plan, but because they felt so compelled by the issues they care about that it kind of changed the course of their lives. And I think if we can keep this energy up and this momentum up and we can, you know, continue doing the indivisible thing, once Democrats have control, we still need to call our our representatives and push them to do the things we want to do. If we can do that, I think the Democrats will realize that they actually have support behind them. They actually have new voters that are going to consistently be there for them. And I hope that they'll see that more radical and bold politics work. You know, and that's true of how Republicans operate as well. Um, the Republican Party, not the electeds, but the actual party membership, knows that you get what you want out of your party if you're constantly beating it with a stick. One of the uh, things I was trying to work on in D.C. is getting some legislation passed through that funded uh, an FBI Department of Homeland Security project to go after white nationalist terrorists. Mm -hmm. And the gun crowd used that situation to fundraise. 
So what they did was they was they went in. They said this isn't about Nazis. This is about anybody who wants to sit in the woods with a rifle and be left alone. And they used it as this big fundraising opportunity for the NRA and the other like uh, super duper liberty types. Uh, and they made a ton of money and they killed the bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was that was them not even they didn't even care about the bill because they knew it didn't have anything to do with gun rights. They just used it as a fundraising oppor- opportunity. So they yeah. got out of their mess out of that kind of operation. The political operatives got a ton of money and they killed a bill. We can do that without being selfie, selfish, you know, lying, you know, Republicans about this and just ask people to kill bills that we don't like or support bills that we do. Um, so I guess that's my next question, Amanda. How do we engage the Democratic electorate and convince them that hitting our representatives until they do what we want them to do is the way forward? I mean, I think first and foremost, we show them that it works. Um I think that's one reason we've actually been able to sustain the level of energy, what, almost, you know, a year and a half into the Trump administration. Um, I think from the beginning, you know, a lot of people took it for granted that the ACA was going to be repealed, that these major wins were going to go away. And to many people's surprise, because folks got organized, because they got angry, because people who you know, literally didn't even know who their representative was before started calling them daily we've seen just a sea change happening. So even though Democrats have pretty much zero power in government, we've operated like a party that has, you know, at, at least some sway here. Um, so I think if we keep doing things like that, if we keep seeing things like we saw this week where citizens were outraged and Trump backed down. And again, I want to be really clear, his executive order is terrible and still, uh, you know, keeps families imprisoned indefinitely. So this is not a huge win However, I do think it's the first time since he's been in office that Trump has responded at all to public outrage. You know, it's only seemed to feed him before. And this is the first time I've ever seen him blink. Yeah. So I think if we keep doing things like this, we keep seeing that it works, even if it doesn't work as much as we want it to or as consistently as we want it to. um, You know, people will find more confidence. And particularly if we can take back, you know, at least one of the houses of Congress in 2018, um, I think we'll see a lot more of that where people will call and they'll actually see something happen. They'll see a bill pass um, and maybe Trump will veto it. But, you know, they'll see that the levers of government actually work when citizens participate. I think that's the major thing that we've been missing. Yep. And, and I think also we don't know how Trump's going to leave office, but depending on what's revealed by the Mueller investigation, it could be a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope so. And I, and I think that's the sort of thing that can only really happen if we've got that Democratic majority that we can convince people works. Yeah. Um, and you know, related to that, I also, you know, speaking of government or of Democrats being bold, I think the Mueller investigation and everything going on with Trump is another opportunity where we really need to be bold and radical and not afraid of doing the right thing, even if it's something that's never been done before. So, for instance, if it is shown that Trump colluded with the Russians to steal an election, it's becoming more and more clear uh, by the day. You know, I don't think the answer to that is just to remove Trump and have President Pence. That makes no sense. If they stole an election, we need to get rid of both of them. Yeah, and I, I agree. That, yeah, and I hope that when that, you know, the time comes for something like that, that we are strong. And frankly, I would also go as far to remove uh, Neil Gorsuch from office because if Trump didn't actually win the election, he shouldn't get to appoint a Supreme Court justice. But, you know, you say that to a mainstream Democrat, and that seems really radical, even though 
it's just clearly the fair thing to do if that election was illegitimate. I think I one know. of the problems we have with the Democratic Party and the way that we uh, look at things is that we often talk about the delicate nature of democracy. Mm-hmm. And that really angers me because democracy is not delicate. Democracy is what caused Brexit. It's what caused Trump to a certain degree. I, I really believe that our institutions will be strong if we treat them as if they are strong. Mm-hmm. And that our our public systems will be strong if we behave as if we are strong. But the more we talk about the weakness of democracy and and the fragility of our institutions, the more they will be seen as fragile. And in a democratic consensus society, that actually makes them fragile. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to stop doing that. I wanted to drag us back in the direction of um, talking about actions, direct actions and immigration for just another minute. And I... I was really impressed by what seemed to be, and it may just have been coincidental, but it seemed to be the um, effectiveness of the protest that your protest in the Mexican restaurant. And, you know, because the very next morning we have her standing over the right shoulder of Trump while he's, you know, signing his stupid executive order or the executive order that slightly, ever so slightly possibly improved the situation. Um, And not nearly enough, but that's so. But I was thinking about these short fuse, um, highly pinpointed actions and. It made me think about, um, remember the deck of cards when we went into Iraq that they mm-hmm. gave? Every coalition troop had a, you know, this deck of cards featuring the 52 most wanted, basically. Mm. It it strikes me that it'd be pretty easy to come up with 52 faces to put on cards and mm-hmm. hand out to, um, or in fact, sell to um, uh, resistance operatives who might be in the area and a fundraising or, you know, fundraising opportunity for the organization that does it, but B it gives people, because I don't know what these people look like. Yeah. You know, most of them have a great marketing idea there. Yeah. So for someone somewhere, you know, 52, you know, cards of, you know, these are who were out, you know, these are who they are. Yeah. Well, and then it occurred to me, okay, so then we need another deck. We need the other side. We need 52 cards of the most influential, uh, you know, Dems. And when we see those people, you carry with you basically a little like a little thank you notes, basically. I'm thinking like a little business card thing that says, you know, and you can, whatever the issue is for the, you know, for that period of time, uh, thank you for your vote on or thank you for supporting. And you just write that and you leave it on their table quietly and walk away. Or you just hand it to them quietly and walk away. So they can keep doing what they're doing. You're not interrupting. You're just setting it there and walking. But it's another way, like calling into their offices, of showing them that people on the ground are paying attention. Mm-hmm. Because I think... There's a negative push that's important and there's a positive push that's important because these Dems have been compromising and um, uh, not as strong as we have needed them to be for a very long time. Mm 
And I think if they understand or more clearly understand that we have their back, it makes it easier. So looking for ways to drive that forward, you know, ways large and small, it seems to me that it's worth sitting around and maybe brainstorming about some of the best ways to achieve that other than just constantly calling offices. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I mean, I think part of, you know, I think that the Democrats should do the right thing regardless of if we praise them for it. Um, you know, it's it's their job to represent us properly, even when we're not engaged. But I do think that, um, you know, there's a split in the Democratic base versus the Republican base and that the Democrats tend to only come out, you know, during presidential year elections. We don't necessarily pay a lot of attention in between. And so it makes sense that, you know, the Republicans are constantly slamming the Democrats for anything they do that's not towing the line. And we aren't really there praising them or fighting back or, you know, defending. So I do think that if we continue to be more engaged as people have been in the last year and a half, that will help bolster their confidence a lot. Um, And, you know, the fact is it's not fair, but the rules of the game in politics right now are very rigged. And even though the Republicans have a lot less, you know, actual people power, they have a lot less popular support than Democrats do their support goes a lot further because they have all the big money and interest. So we need to, you know, work twice as hard to achieve twice as much. Um, Basically any group out of power kind of has that uh, dilemma, but I think we need to actually do it and make sure that our representatives know that we have their back. And also frankly, that we're watching and we don't want to see them compromise either. It's, it's clear to me that there's enormous pressure to lean in on the issue of children immediately this the children mm-hmm. you know this crisis as as well there should be but daca and asylum are also really life yeah. and death issues and frankly the other the immigration issue that's not getting airtime is the fact that we're short immigrants there are you know we actually yeah. this country survives based on a certain amount of immigration and there are crops in California riding in the fields. So, you know, it's a, unless, unless aggrieved white men want to move to temporarily to Fresno, California in 110 degree heat and pick raisins, I suggest, you know, somebody figure something out. But the, my point is that I worry that we are going to, and it's what you were saying before about solving problems in a piecemeal way, that Mm -hmm. we are going to rush to solve this problem with the children of immigrants. Yeah. And, um, and forfeit the opportunity to, to um, pressure on DACA and asylum at the same time, because to me, those are all of a piece. It yeah. is all cruelty. It is all life-threatening. It is all essential. Yeah, and that is where Democrats tend to fail. I think, you know, we're always focused on issues that we can win. Um, we always want the thing where, like, it's so egregious that obviously people have to agree with us, and therefore it's not risky. Um But the thing is, as we've seen with Trump, you know, he's been able to really radicalize the Republican base in a way that they weren't before. Individuals were, definitely. We've been kind of going that way with Fox News and everything. But 
the way that the over the level that the Overton window has shifted just in the past two years that he's yeah. been this huge figure is incredible. Um, and I think he's really shown that if you keep pushing people and pushing people, they will move. And unfortunately, he's pushing them the wrong way. Um, but I think that there's a lot of power that Democrats could find if they're willing to push the social norms and actually advocate for ideas that aren't necessarily, you know, really obvious common sense things that we should all agree upon. Um, you know, I think for some people, there are many things that are counterintuitive, you know, a jobs guarantee might feel counterintuitive. You know, we've had a lot of, uh, rhetoric around welfare and government handouts and things like that, that we need to undo. But at the end of the day, if you actually explain to people what a jobs guarantee would, would do and how it would help people, they come around. And in fact, we did see that with the ACA at some point that, you know, people thought that government healthcare was terrible in some way. And in fact, now they get mad if you even try to encroach on it at all. Um, so I think we need to be bold and really just lead with new ideas instead of constantly going to the easiest thing. I think right now, because we're in a moment of having to play defense, because we actually aren't able to pass legislation on our own, and obviously there's these grave threats, I think it's fine for us to take that position. But I do worry that once we have some power, we're going to continue just playing defense because it's honestly easier than playing offense. Well, while we are still on defense, while we are still stuck... I've been wondering over the last few days about what is the trade-off? What are the advantages and what are the disadvantages? And I actually, before the show, I spoke with you briefly about this. What if we just gave Trump what he wants? What if we gave him his stupid wall? Um, and in trade for children, DACA, asylum. Because those are people dying right now. And frankly, if I'm weighing spending money I don't want to spend on a wall versus someone's life, I'm for saving the life. And I almost feel like by letting Trump push off the wall and tie it into the budget at the end of the year and separate these two things that we are giving up a tactical advantage that might be useful to us, both at the end of the year when we're battling about budget and now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated. I don't think we've been in this, you know, as much of a powder keg of a situation as we are now. So it's hard to say what we should and shouldn't be willing to do. It does worry me, though, giving into Trump in any way in regard to these children. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think, obviously, if it means that these kids will be reunited, there's a lot of things that we should do to make sure that happens. But I really worry about not even just the long term, but the short term effects of letting Trump essentially take children hostage and then giving him what he wants. Because I think all that does is make him do it again. You know, if we if we give in on something as disgusting and egregious as this, I worry that he's going to keep taking these tactics. So th that's my main hesitation there. I just feel like we need to, in general, I think we need to stop letting him set the terms of the debate. I don't disagree with that. I just don't know how to save lives and you know, I don't know how we get what we want and save lives. And I'm, yeah. I so well, I'm so 
I'm, I mean, I am as terrified by the, the people who are being turned back at the border and not being allowed to seek asylum as anything else. You know, those, those people yeah. are, those people are dying. Actively, yeah. daily dying. I mean, at the same time, Arliss, I don't necessarily know the wisdom of trying to do a deal with Donald Trump. Because every time this man has ever done a deal throughout his entire business and political career, anyone who works for him, with him oh, yeah. gets screwed. Like, oh, I don't yeah. think it's possible. I, I, I don't think it's possible for him to have, to, for us to have some kind of deal with Donald Trump. I think if we try to do that, he'll renege on everything that we attempt. Or if we, if we imply, um, if, we, if we establish some kind of DACA thing, he'll issue some kind of executive order that tries to yeah. prevent it from working. And then probably if yeah, you know, right about the that. wall does move forward and then something, you know, someone dies at the wall and he'll be like, oh, well, it's the Democrats wall. Like, you know, I, he just he's yeah. that's how abuse works. Right. Like he's constantly shifting goalposts. He's constantly gaslighting. He's constantly blaming the people he oppresses for the oppression. It's it's impossible to win. And I think the way that we do fight him is to just constantly call it out. I think the main thing that Democrats have done wrong, that the media has done wrong, that any decent person has done wrong, is to allow him in any regard to be seen as normal or okay. I think we need to constantly be calling his abuse out in in no uncertain terms, even if other people are going to disagree with us. And I think it's been the problem is the second that mainstream America disagrees with us, we back off. We need to push that message. And frankly, if we just keep calling out Trump's abuse... All he's going to do is keep proving it. You know, we can't go more than a week or two without some new, disgusting, vile policy. So if we keep our message clear that Trump is, you know, the most abusive, narcissistic madman that we've ever, you know, had in the Oval Office, but even had in mainstream politics, I think he's only going to prove us right. Yeah, I do think in this coming election, in the 2018 election, that we really do need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We we really do need to be able to run against Trump at the same time we are running on what we will do, mm-hmm. what we can do. Well, that's the thing. I think we need to spend a lot less time talking about any details with Trump and just go back to the same thing. He's an abusive madman. Okay, done. Now let's talk about our ideas. I like yeah. that. Yeah. It's when we get lost in, you know, oh, well, what did he tweet today? Oh, what did his wife wear today? What did, you know, his terrible aides say on Fox News? Like, I don't care about any of that. He's an abusive madman. Move on. Yeah, it isn't the minutia. The minutia. It is the it is the big story. It is the big picture. And, you know, yeah, the big I, picture I, is he's killing, you know, he's killing people at the board, you know, basically killing people at the border. He's, mm-hmm. you know, ripping children away from families. He's, yeah. um, you know, driving hate and racism in this country in a way it has never been, you know, driven. He's a fascist. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the big things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. He's very good at churning out minutia at a rate that we've never seen before. It's very interesting because he's willing to break every single norm that ever existed, even the really ridiculous ones. And so we want to cover all of that because it's interesting. It's entertaining. You know, he knows how to entertain a TV audience and he does it every single day. But we need to ignore that stuff and focus on the actual degradation of our country and of the rule of law. 
I am really concerned about our place in the world as well. This whole yes. nightmare with, you know, the G7 and and insulting, you know, the the whole situation with Canada that it there's making Canada our enemy and North Korea our friend. There is I mean, I I am all for whatever, you know, reasonably can be done to lower tensions with North Korea because God forbid there should be a war there, but this isn't the way you get there. Oh, I mean, it's pretty much the opposite of how Trump got there, right? He started off calling him Rocket Man on Twitter and deliberately provoking him. So I don't trust Trump at all to um, even care about actually bringing down tensions. Well, the thing that makes me crazy about that is that the Trump administration unwittingly agreed to give up our nuclear weapons. The Koreans told us in 1994 that uh, complete and total denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula means that there will be no nuclear weapons capable of hitting the Korean Peninsula. So they turn right around to us and say, when are you giving up your nukes? And, you know, we know that's what they mean because they said it in 94. And Trump's folks weren't smart enough to remember that. So they're going to accuse us of being the ones that renege. (laughs) They're going to accuse us of being the ones who reneged because they're like, we told you what this meant last time. Didn't you pay attention to history? Well, yeah. And, you know, we just reneged on the Iran deal. So there's plenty of precedent of Trump not actually keeping his promises. I mean, I think the whole the whole situation is incredibly dangerous. You know, my only hope is that once we have someone new in there, someone normal and and stable, you know, that basically the rest of the world will be kind enough to us to understand the strange nature of our politics and you know, give us a shot here. But I think that's really, that's a lot to ask um, after, you know, what we've done to them, what we're doing to them, what remains to be done to them. Um, but, you know, I, I recall when Obama first got into office and he went on, you know, what Fox News dubbed an apology tour throughout Europe. I mean, my God, we're going to need that and then some yeah. to gain back the trust. It's we're going to need an apology tour on our knees with lots of flowers and chocolate. It's going to take a lot to get this, you know, to get this pulled back from the brink. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us and inspiring us with um, your creative action. You never cease to amaze me and um, how courageous you are and how um, clever you are about messaging and focusing your message and just um, in very thoughtful and inventive ways. And I think those kinds of things really capture people's imagination and inspire people all over the country. And I just really want to thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think in the Trump era, we need to recognize that people, you know, want to be entertained they want to see new and interesting things and trump has been providing that in a really negative and destructive way but i think the democrats and the leftists in general can harness that um you know the desire to see new things to see boundaries being pushed but actually in a positive direction and take it more radical and do things that inspire people rather than just you know appeal to their cynical side that trump i think is uh his whole base is based upon 
Well, with that, thank you so much. Folks, Will and I send out our thanks to Netroots Radio, our show's editor, Michelle LaShore, and especially to you for listening to us today. You can find the broadcast version of Hopping Mad on Netroots Radio at 8 a.m. on Mondays. The full podcast version of our show is free and usually includes an extended interview, which we call Extra Mad. The podcast can be found on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and very, very soon, if not already, uh, Spotify. And most other internet podcast apps, our website is imhoppingmad.com, and you can listen to or download or comment on the show there. We do really, really love to receive your comments, and we make every effort to answer them as soon as our day jobs permit, because we're both pretty slammed. You can find us on Twitter at I'm Hopping Mad. Will's on Twitter at WillMcLeod99, and I'm there, obviously, as Arliss Bunny. Hopping Mad is the place on Progressive Radio for deep dive down the rabbit hole coverage of politics, economics, and of course, carrots. Until next week, cheers. Oh, actually, I take that back. Next week, I think we have, do we have 4th of July in there somewhere? Yeah, we have 4th of July uh, in two weeks, and we're probably not going to be, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the week of July 2nd. So we're probably going to be back in two weeks. Yes, that's probably right. Exactly. Uh, next up is K-Grower in the Morning here on Netroots Radio.